Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. Earlier on today, we managed to sit down with James Ellis Caird, who's a PGA professional and author of The Uncorrupted Pleasure of an Old Bladed Putter, a new book that's just been released and written by James and is a collection of golfing fables, and it's illustrated by Jamie Buckridge. It was interesting to sit down with James and chat about his philosophy about golf and the stories that are in the books and their inspiration that he's taken from all of his pupils and made these fictional characters based on people he's met throughout the world of golf. So it's a lovely little chat we have with James and he's one of the truly interesting blokes of the game. So settle back and enjoy. Watch this. How about that drive-in, anyway? <laughs> Tell me about this coffee. What am I? It's cookie caramel by Nespresso. Very on brand, isn't it? It's like one of their creations. They're not. I didn't think it was that good. I just. It I smells very sweet. Are you a coffee drinker? No, not at all. I really not 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 any coffee. I really like to be because just can't as get someone's into it. quite creative, I like the idea of making coffees. Mm. I mean, when I was at Urban Golf, I used to love making coffees for other people because Do you like the smell of it. No. Really? Mm. Yeah, I think it's the smell that put me off. But I love the idea of how you can create wonderful different coffees and the the way you make the actual sort of milk. I really enjoyed that process. I, I, I you like can the disappear up your own backside with it, though, oh, can't can you? you? Really? I think I mean, I, you can get a bit too into it. People who have like uh, drippers and all that oh, sort wow, of stuff and little is. digital scales. I think espresso is the correct amount of nerd. It's a good coffee without is being it? a complete nerd. Yeah, because you, know, you just because it's capsules, you just like. Unofficial sponsor We're, of today's. Our house is full of teas, different teas. teas. Yeah. But I'm a big more, tea guy. I'm a I'm a classic fruit, fruit builder's tea or? tea or or mint from the garden tea. Yeah, nice. Well, you make your own mint tea. Well, yeah, because it's um it's more it's more delicate. So tea bag mint tea bags are it's a bit harsh, but if you just grow your own mint, it's a real delicate taste. Now, and mint is a is a plant which takes over there, isn't it? Yeah, I don't but, want to go into a botany podcast here, but it literally goes berserk, doesn't it? It mate? does go berserk. What, so you do that. I just put pick some mint. it and then what? Put it in like some little... No, just put it in the cup and then put not boiling water. Let it get the temperature to about 83.4. I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> give, so, it give it a point Exactly. Um, and then just, yeah. And then it's just, it's really good for digestion after dinner, after any meal. And it's just really gentle. Do you serve it long? Like a, like a mug of mint tea or do you do like a short, um, like a small... Cup just a normal like just a mug, mug, a nice mug of mint tea. How many yeah. how many leaves go in a mug of mint tea? Oh, that's a good question. I just pick a handful. Yeah, a handful. A handful. Yeah, exactly. It depends how minty you want it. But it's, it's just nicer than the tea bag. It's it's, it's more it's more delicate taste. It's artisanal. So you're full of um. So you we, we, we full disclaimer. We've just had a, a nine holes of golf and a bit of a natter. But you've moved into the countryside and have become a bit more hunting, shooting, fishing. I don't want to say into the hunting, were. even though I heard the the classic the other day coming from the <laughs> coming across the field. We we moved from Buckinghamshire, and we were quite sort of like in the sticks there. But we've now just moved somewhere you're really in the sticks, and we've got mm. a bit of land and got some sheep and uh, got about sixteen. Yeah, I get the sense that's your vibe, though, James. Like you I'm, know the you know your you know if, if people you know we're going to talk about your book shortly, but at rewilding the golfer there's some hippie vibes coming off you're quite a kind of cool laid back very very healthy man kind of get the feeling that living out in the sticks and being a bit more sort of connected with mother nature is you 
It, I think I'm finding that, yeah. I think it's always been there and you just it takes a while to discover who you are, doesn't it? And I think the idea of just, yeah, I, I'm not sure I want to be called as a hippie, um, but, uh, <laughs> but I really like the idea. I think if you wanted to label yourself as a hippie, I think you, you are then not a hippie. It's like yeah. you say you're cool. If you ever say I'm cool, then you're automatically not cool. But I think you're a little bit of a hippie. Do you? I think, okay. yeah. I'll take it. It's fine. Yeah, but you're right. I really. <laughs> I was fine, saying to you. I was saying to Sam. Maybe I really enjoy sort of coming back from the golf club if I've just you know seen a client or something or played a few holes and literally then just get rid of my golfing clothes, which which are not golfing clothes. I never really like them, um, and then just putting on something. And then I've just loved recently just chopping down trees and you know with just learning to use a chainsaw. Um, <laughs> And just vicious making stuff very vicious. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty. I was them. petrified of it. I've got myself like a wood horse. So, and I chopped down my first big What's tree. It's where you then you chop your tree, chop your tree down, and then you lay the trunk across it. It grips it. So then, when you're you're chopping up into the bits, uh, like a vice. Like no, a not a vice. It's a it's a it's sort of like a V thing. You can't. Oh, really okay. It and it yeah, sits yeah, in yeah. there. And it grips it, and then you then chop up the wood, nice. and then I get the axe out, and it's just I, yeah, I'm loving that, and just having a bit of. And you've, got let, we, you've got to let wood rest, haven't you, for some for some years? You certain wood. So yeah. we've got ash trees in in sort of the land. So I can chop them straight down and put them straight on the fire because they're they don't go. absor- they're good to go. They don't absorb that much water. But ash and birch, then I do. If you chop them down, they need to sort of season for like a sort of a year, eighteen months, or you yeah. can kiln dry them. Just to Amazing. get rid of all that moisture. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, Sam, I could hear him ready to move on the conversation. I'm not ready yet because Amazing. um. You know, it will just build up his soot in your in your in your chimney, and um, so I, I'm loving that type of lifestyle. So Which I'm really embracing it. Vastly different from your former life. Yeah, is it? It it is. It's not vastly different because we didn't live in a town or anything. We lived out in Buckinghamshire. You know Amersham, yeah, don't you? Yeah, quite yeah. well. Um, it's outside of London, but it's still vastly different from the suburbs of mm. you know, which now is London. You know. And- and doing a different sort of thing. So I suppose where we've connected in the past before is our connections through Urban, Golf and James Day. And you obviously spent a bit of time down at Urban. Yeah, that was that was wonderful. Um, I, was, I spent about 15 years, I think, with Urban. Um, James um, sort of, they contacted me sort of six months into their project. Um, amazing project, you know, James, and uh, he set that up. And Soho was the the baby that was the original one and it was a great time it was um you know no one had simulators um people would come in it was all about the lessons it was pure it was about golf and um and you know and james was great you know as he expanded the business to kensington and and smithfield um i stayed on at soho and you know it, it just allowed me to sort of really be free and think about the game in a different way you know i had that freedom to do that while working and in the middle of Soho, mm. doing golf in a simulator was it was. It was it was well, good your fun. book is a, is basically. I mean, I I would say it's. I think it's right up there in the top one or two stocking fillers you could get in the UK this year. The other set, the other of course being a packet of cookie jar tea pegs. I think mm. either that or the uncorrupted pleasure of a of a bladed putter. I mean, that's very kind. I, I think are beautiful stocking fillers, and I want to get on to those, but. You're a professional golfer, spent a lot of time coaching the game. Talk us through how, how did you come up to end? How did you wind up working at Urban Golf? You know, what was the sort of route in junior golf? Got good? 
Um, I, I how, did, how did it all sort of how did that whole thing come up, come about because yeah. even working as a pro at urban is like it's a real outlier in the world of professional golf as well isn't it you know it's like it's a niche part of being a professional definitely um it's a good question because i didn't unlike james who played a james day who owned urban golf he played a lot of junior golf mm. um i didn't i sort of i came across golf when i was about 14 15 you know i just i uh, think it was i was working the local paper shop and I went up there and I think I think it was a five iron and I just borrowed a friend's, you know, I, I don't know if I probably missed the first shot and then I just hit this five iron down the second at Lay Hill. It's a beautiful little nine hole course in Chesham. Um, I know Lay Hill. I think that's where I played my first round of golf. It's the most, no it's the most yeah, charming so. place in the world. Um, I know there's other charming nine hole golf courses, <laughs> but... Um, and I remember that five and I was, I was completely hooked. I was hijacked by the game. And I remember going home and sort of saying to my parents, I want to play golf. And they got me a little set. And then I sort of, I tinkered with it. I played a bit. I played cack handed, you know, because. Left over right. Four yeah, shots, everything. Lay Hill is a beautiful little course. There's no pro shop, you know, no driving range, just a net, a little bowling green. And I just played, you know, and, and I wouldn't teach a cack handed grip, but, um, you know, I still got down to about 22 and I was playing golf with it. And then mm. obviously then just people was the pressure and I changed it. And First, so, first sidetrack alert. Is, is there actually, is there a ceiling to a cacandy grip? That's a really good question. Um, I've, I knew a, a lad as a junior that I played at Kings Norton with who played cacandy and he was off plus four. So no. Really? He was not a long hitter, but he was like lethally accurate. And again, I think it's, you know, it's a huge outlier. I, I, that's the only time I've ever seen someone of like any real good quality. Yeah, was like really yeah, yeah. No, really, he was really only good, like 15. Yeah. Like he was crazy good. Yeah. Um, but it just shows you, doesn't it? It's like, you, you just wouldn't. You're not you going to see it on tour. You're not going to see it on <laughs> tour. You're not going to see it in your local golf club. But the, but what that means is it, you don't have to hold it in a certain way to play golf, do you? Or swing you don't, it. Or you don't have to swing about it. Or, you really don't. And so, you're not going to, even in the relaxed way I sort of teach, I'm not going to get someone to hold a cack handy. There's no point. It's just a bit more, it's less natural, that's all. But it but doesn't you, mean you can't start the game. You don't. You can't yeah. not play. But you can't you, join you, a club. I joined a club, yeah. got a handicap with a cack handy grip. And, then and you kind of learnt it for yourself. You, you pretty much self-taught? Yeah, self-taught to start with, yeah. Um, we talked about it briefly out on playing a few holes, didn't we, about, I mentioned mm. in the book about the wonderful thing about learning in a net. Mm. And I didn't realise that at the time until I sort of looked back on on golf when I was writing the book and how that really taught me to understand what a good golf swing felt like without explain that a bit because like obviously I've read the book and talked about it but explain you know as golfers we shy away from hitting balls in a net give me a sim or a range and I'm all over it you know and actually you think the opposite would be more beneficial just just bring that to life a bit um well I guess without when you're in the net you, you, you can't see the result okay but you can get it, you can grasp a sense, you can learn to feel if you've thinned it, if you've there's cured feedback. it, there's feedback immediately through that feeling. And, you know, after a while, you can tell if you've, if you've gonna, you've hit it left, you've hit it right. You can also tell if you've put a little bit of cut spin on it and played a fade in it. Mm. And, and by learning and understanding about what something feels like, I just believe you'd be a much better golfer because you understand more about how something feels. And, 
you, you, Tom, you were saying how much you enjoy sort of more the numbers and the simulated stuff. And, yeah. But it is good as an affirmation of something, a confirmation. So yeah. I don't disagree with technology and numbers, but... But well, on the range I, I, you build I, your game about you trying can, to like, yeah. oh, I want to hit it higher or you, that one's gone a little bit further right. And then it's like, well, I'm, I'm hitting it right. So well, maybe, but you wouldn't be thinking about that in the net. No, no, you wouldn't be. You'd be feeling it because, you know, Urban was great, but you found that if people left to their own devices were sort of became very brittle to the straight line mm. and they're very critical themselves and trying to perfect something that was slightly offline by a yard, an angle, or, you know, mm. a, a, you know, a degree in reality is you can, you can hit a five iron. If you feel like you've hit it awful, you've, you've hit it on the green, you get up there and actually 18 feet to the right is still holdable. It's never that yeah. bad, but mm -hmm. on the simulators and on the driving range, you can be can look miles away. It can look miles away, and then you start overcorrecting, over worrying, over thinking, and then you know you can end up just never sort of taking ownership of anything. Mm. And it's it's just taking ownership of something that makes golfers, you know, good golfers. You know, the swing is a very small part of the game, isn't it? And it's important to understand how a swing works, understand how it feels for you. But the, as quickly as you can take ownership of a feeling, it doesn't matter what that is. There's a few principles that sort of help create consistency and power within that, but that allows you then to learn to play the game and learn mm -hmm. to enjoy the game. It's a small stepping stone to the actual, you know, we played today and, you know, it was sticky, it was wet, it was lovely conditions, but all the sorts of lies we found ourselves in from good shots and bad shots is, that's only learn. What was the verdict on Blackwell? We've got to, we've got to get, got to get you some third party endorsement there. <laughs> it's really enjoyable. For winter golf. You can't, you can't say anything bad now because we put you on the spot. No, but there's nothing bad to say anyway, is there? Mm. I mean, it's classic parkland golf. It's sort of like, it's not short, but it's compact. You don't have to walk miles in between you know, the holes. You don't feel like you see another hole anyway. No. That's the beauty of it. It's, mm. it's in a small amount of land, isn't it, as you said? Yeah. But every hole seems individual. You need to hit fade, you need to hit draws. There's a lot of creativity. I think it brings on tons. I think it suits you because I think you, you would... You would discussing earlier how like you just like to see shapes and you're like oh i'd like to fade this or i'd like to draw this and you kind of like i don't think we played only played nine holes and we played nine holes quite quickly we got around an hour and 20 and just managed to, to miss the dark with some quite decent golf thrown in actually for all of us really but i don't think i heard you say today i'm gonna hit a straight one like you were like oh i'm I've, yeah i'm probably gonna fade this one i'm gonna try and draw this one and they're not always fades or draws but no. it's how you want to it's, you, it's like it's planning for the best shot isn't it it's planning for that mm. shot and because i think the more i i feel like i want to hit a shot then there's more chance of it coming off mm. and i always feel like a straight shot is just a happy accident anyway i know clubs are designed for the ball to go straight but again to actually think you can hit a, a, a shot point to point straight i think you'll always be sort of then where it's, it's not impossible yeah. it's not yeah. impossible and so your bad shot could be left or right Mm. So you're better off being a big slicer of the ball because if you know where your ball starts and finishes, not that you want to be a big slicer, but you'll be far more consistent yeah, with a big it was slice. Nicholas used to say that, wasn't it? Like that you can basically eliminate one half of the golf course if you only play one shape. You can just you make the golf you make the fairway twice as wide essentially because you know if you hit fades, it, nothing but fades. You know you can hit down the left side of the fairway as hard as you like. If it goes straight, you hit the left side of the fairway. If it fades, you go the right side of the fairway. But you're never really going to be two-way misses are dangerous. Though. Oh, exactly right. Yeah, and there's a big difference between you sort of like wanting your ball to finish in the middle mm. than actually trying to hit it straight down the mm. middle. But I also get sense. the sense 
despite being you know professional golfer teaching coaching players playing at a really good level i also get the sense you couldn't give a monkeys about the score or anything really there's there's something a, a different connection with golf than score and output and what and card and pencil stuff there, might there be definitely is now um but i'm not saying that should be the only way to play golf because if i think back to when i was younger and i was you know getting into golf i loved i loved trying to get the ball in the hole I love scoring. It was it was wonderful. It was just a drive to try to, you know, to break. I remember the first time I broke 80, you know, that's an incredible feeling, you know. Mm. Um, and then the first time you broke, you know, 75 and then 70. And, and I loved the, the scorecard. And that's when I was a member of a club. And then you just, as you transition through your life and, and you do different things, it's, it's just becoming less important to me now. You know, it's um, it's about purely for the love and joy of the game and the feel for a shot. You know, mm. like today we played and... How I many clubs that, are in that bag? Today, I think there was seven. Okay. And that's just out of pure laziness. But also, <laughs> it's um, it's also out of like... They were all cavity back, a lot helping them. <laughs> they were all brand new clubs, were they? They were brand spanking you. James Day made them for me 16 years ago. Yeah, they're still <laughs> so the same. So they were a James Day set. It's a, it's a James full Day, of It would have been one of the first Mura sets um, when we first come across Mura's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you said you've never played with more than one wood in the bag? Not no, generally no. Um, driver or a forward. We well, used to have a little Bobby Jones Callaway. Were you forward. the burner driver? Sorry, what was the driver? Was it a burner? I, ju- I don't even know. Someone gave it to me um, about <laughs> Love that. Um, six months ago. Brilliant. Um, I, I, yeah, I, re- I really don't know. Um, I can't so remember good. what it is. You might know. Oh, was it an M two? It wasn't an M two. It definitely it wasn't, wasn't okay, an M two. I don't know. But it was older than that. But it. I, but this is the segue you see and that, that's why I bring up the clubs because the book is called The Uncorrupted Pleasure of an Old Bladed Putter that's right yeah which is a bit of a mouthful but it's the book little, is it's got a little subtitle beautiful. isn't it yeah so it you know the title for that book the premise behind the book first time you've written a book oh absolutely yeah and I've been writing for a few years so no way so you've been doing sort of like pieces and stuff and then thought well I'm just going to yeah. Like, where, where, where's the whole idea behind the book come around? I loved it. It's a lovely, lovely read. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Yeah, it, it, it's it just came. I don't know. It, it's a really, that's a really good question because I guess when I started at Urban, um, I hadn't done much teaching. I've done a little bit of teaching, um, but we talked briefly on the phone about that. That I was just new in the back of my mind. Teaching was pretty poor generally. You know, it it had an it had a bad effect on my game when I was a I was an amateur. Um, you know, I have no idea, no idea what a flat backswing was until someone told me that. Mm. Until that point, I had a lovely little shape. Didn't have any fear over the what the club did on the way back. And then someone told you, you were too flat. Some told me my swing was flat, and um, from that point on, and it I bet still it was haunts James me Day now as well. And I bet he loves it. <laughs> Sorry, he loves a flat backswing, James Day. Doesn't yeah. He? I bet it was James. It wasn't James. You no. can't go flat enough for James. No, 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 no. But anyway, so then I got to Urban and uh, I, I don't know what, something just told me that this is a great opportunity to think about the game now, think about teaching and um, and, and really focus my attention purely on on on, on the game of golf. And, and I made this decision and I never really read much anyway about golf. And I just said, right, I'm just not going to listen to anybody else, read any magazines, look at any books, listen to anything anyone's saying. And it was sort of quite scary because you think you're going to miss out on some of the latest sort of fads mm. or techniques. But actually, the sort of the opposite happened. It's sort of like it really 
it was quite liberating and, it, and I started working and thinking from just like a, my own mind, one mind. Mm. And I just started allowing to, and I had the freedom at Urban to, as I was teaching, to think about it. And then I just thought, you know, I'm just going to start jotting this down. This is quite interesting and I quite enjoy this. Because they're kind of stories of people you've encountered, most of them students, a lot of them from your time at Urban, right? Yeah, they sort of, even though they come under the sort of bracket of one person, they're, they're a blend. They're kind of, yeah. They're a There's blend. some creative license around how you build you exactly. know, the corporate guy that goes out and plays he's the four a, ball. He's, a, he's, an, he's an amalgamation, amalgamation of, of all sorts. Of a vast number of people I saw, correct? Yeah. yeah. Like, and, you know, the, the Joy of Imperfection, Chapter 2. Again, she's, yeah. a, she's just another example of a number of people who come to me and... and think they're perfectionists but actually you need to understand you need to take joy from the imperfection and you'd be a lot better i love that bit in fact i wrote that down i seem to remember writing some stuff down about that and saying you know kind of i think you you, you quote in there voltaire a perf, a, a, as perfect being the enemy of good or whatever it was and and the fact that you've kind of almost got to take the the love of the imperfection of the game of being like that's exactly why we're doing it. this is not a bad thing like and the, the woman you were teaching was basically just you know, I want to excel at this and I should be absolutely perfect. And it's like, well, no, there's no one is. And you're a rank beginner here. Like, it's Ex a crazy exactly. story. And, um, you know, I think one of my favorite little bits in the book is the bit in that chapter. And it, it talks about, you know, being a good enough golfer. Mm. And I mean, you, you hit a couple of just magnificent shots today. He's looking, at me, he's, he's looking at He's looking at He's me. looking at me. Looking for that. Yeah, sorry. sorry. Can you, you clarify who you are? Well. This is an audio-only <laughs> product, and I'd like it if you call the person out, please. Uh, Sam, <laughs> so, thanks, you Dan. flushed like a couple of four-irons, and, th and they're great, and we all hit maybe a couple of really lovely shots today that we're going to take away from that. But, yeah. you know, the real heroes of the game are the shots are not quite so pure, are they? Not so perfect, but they're the shots that sort of like, you know, not quite great, but they're still down the fairway and give you an opportunity yeah, to make birdie. Well. Yeah, but that's a few the thing. Those, yeah. You always have the one that's like you think about when you go to bed, but then you have a ton of things that are vitally important in the round that mm. were, were a bit scabby. You know, they right. weren't perfect, but got away with it. Like I hit, remember I hit that hit the tree off the fourth tee today and then hit just a, a dreadfully commercial three wood up there, but it was actually a fairly, a very acceptable golf shot. And it's like, you don't take any pleasure from that, but no. you don't realise the importance of the imperfect shot that I hit there, actually. They're the ones that could set you up still for a birdie or a par. And like yeah. I say, they're, they're the sort of the day-to-day, the -day. they're the real heroes of the game. They're the, the slightly, the joy, and you've got to take joy from that imperfection. And, mm. and it's lovely if you strike three or four drives or a couple of irons and you get a part that's just so pure. But it's the part that doesn't go in, but it hasn't gone five foot by and you just tap it in. Mm. So that's that's what a lot of people don't take from the game. And that's what helps you become a really enjoy, enjoy you the golf. Um, do that that sort of quest for perfect actually just undoes, like is, is, is kind of like, is what ruins it for most golfers. Because I, I find, like, if I don't play around and I'm like, oh, God, you know, I, I can't take joy from, from the imperfect, like you're saying. Like, I I just get frustrated and I want to be better. Um, and do you find, like, in your experience, a lot of people will just give up golf because they can't get to where they want to be? I think people do give up golf because they don't want to be. But I, I think the people who give up golf are give up golf not because of their ability to to play really well it's because of the way they've taught to think about the game personally mm. because they become that that in mm. that search of perfection is something that they're never going to find and mm. it's a dreadfully inaccessible game at time not and the, do not take what i've just said there's inaccessible in terms of because it is totally accessible at, at, its, at its very heart but it's hard to persist with you know like you talk about people who 
you know, it might not be course ready and there's an intimidation that goes alongside That's with exposing yourself to a golf course for the first time and all these things, most of which you don't really encounter if you're playing football or tennis because it's like I'm on the court from day one. You know, so there's yeah. well, I remember, you know, things that maybe you don't relate to when you've played a lot of junior golf is just actually how imposing the game almost well, can be. I remember as my, because I came, I mean, anyone who's listened to this podcast before will know I came to the game quite late. You know, you turn up and you hit a few balls in a net or whatever and you go down the range and you think, yeah, I can I can play probably play a bit of golf now. And you go to a course and it's so intimidating. And I, I had to, I went and played at a club called Mentmore. It doesn't exist anymore. And, Does um, it not? No, over near you us. know, Mentmore. You know, yeah, because like, it's not far, is it, from yeah, yeah. where you know where you I live? Where, yeah. yeah. Um, no, it was um, two courses. Two courses: the Ro- the Rosebury and the Rothschild. That's right. And they, yeah. um, it was David Ferrity design, actually. Um, but they, Boggy. they, I think the guy who owned it wanted to to like run a big hotel complex because he also owned that house on the top of it that Batman was filmed at. Oh, okay. Um, the first Batman that was Wayne Manor. Um, but I remember turning up there and I kind of, they'd let me in and you join because you just pay a fee and you join. And I didn't get introduced to anybody. I didn't know anybody. And I kind of tapped her on the shoulder and said, you know, can I, I need to put in three cards. I remember you had to put in three cards to get mm-hmm. a handicap. I was like, can I play with you? And I had no idea how to get around the course. And that was like, you say it's not an accessible accessible thing that was intimidating is a better word i think i was poor choice of phrase by me but you're right it is extremely intimidating intimidating. and it remains intimidating pretty much throughout your life in the game whereas i don't think that same thing happens yeah doesn't really happen if we if we play badminton i don't think you know i always you know bag on badminton but it's like i don't i don't feel like badminton's a massively intimidating game for people to play not really because you haven't got other people watching you're not going to disturb other people but, but it's also more like, but oh, that's I wonder why, what they're going to think of my of my badminton swing. Like, no, no one cares what no. your swing looks. No, no one Some cares. Some people no. are good golfers with bad swings that really want to like, mm. or not bad swings, but like just quirky, different, quirky swings. Yeah, and, yeah. and they've got this like, I need to change my swing because it looks a bit weird. And you're, like, well, you're getting round in like five, six over. What's the problem? Oh, I know, but I need you know longer backswing, or I need to. Mm. But that's it's in the ether, isn't it? That's what sort of drives people to sort of think, and that comes from people like me do you think the there PJ. was a dark ages of golf where instruction was like this is how you have to swing this is what it's got to look like yes faldo led better no doubt about it that was the start wasn't it do you think yeah i think so um, i was too because, young to really remember the specifics of it um bring it to life i think that's what affected me we touched me. on it that, with the airs pod like i mean that was did you yeah was, oh, yeah, I did. yeah yeah i think for me because but you know led better was taking someone some somebody that was already amazing yeah. And when you're good at something, you, you have these patterns in your head and you sort of the fundamentals and Faldo was already really good. And so when you take on complex changes, which he did, and he did for six hours a day every day, by the way, um, your brain's able to sort of sift through the, you know, the, the, the feelings that aren't great and just and take away from it what you need to take away, add it onto something that's already solid as a platform, as a layer there. And then suddenly... That's fed, that's dripped right right down into all the PGA pros out there and all the magazines, and then you've got every PGA pro in the in the in the with world a lot of brittle country. golfers who don't have the infrastructure, got the infrastructure, the time, the, platform, the experience, any of the knowledge to be able to absorb that stuff these, and put it in. Yeah. And it's very synthetic, mm. bit by bit, piece by piece, trying to synthetically piece it together, and that left golfers across the world, I think, really sort of, you know. 
broken, kind of disillusioned, disillusioned little bit of what they're doing. And with they're their still swing. being taught now, though. The yeah. golf swing is still. You, you, we were talking about. You asked me what P five was. So what the hell is that? Okay, it wasn't like I wasn't quizzing you. I was no, just no, like, no, no. Do you teach a sort of you know? No. Like, you need to be here at P five, and you, I'm, you know, you quite honestly said I don't even know what P five is. Don't know where it is. I don't know where it is. I know obviously it's a position and it's yeah. a part of the swing, but I know where it is because I think it's just complete bollocks. Yeah. Well, it's so it's it's so difficult because. Um, you know, Bruce and I have had this chat before. He Bruce is absurdly knowledgeable about the swing, and he says to me, "You know what? What your problem is?" And Sam says it, you know, to me sometimes. It took me an age to work out what Sam, even Sam, was talking about. You know, you need width on the way back. You need to create some space. And I was like, "Look, it's certainly Bruce the way he talks about it." You know, he's like, "You need to be here, and you're doing this." And I was like, yeah, "I understand that's what you're telling me." I just don't know how to do it. Positional based swing is extremely hard to, yeah. to absorb, I think. I've played the game for 30 years and I find it really hard it's to think impossible about positions. It's to take ownership of it. Yeah, it's really yeah. hard. It's about taking ownership of something and you won't do that. And that's why people flitter between golf pros and they go on the internet all the time. But I don't feel like your book is a, I don't think it's a swing instruction book. It's, it's not definitely not because it is no. a collection of 13 golfing fables. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's basically like a love letter to golf. That's yeah. the way I'll describe it and trying to take some But a lot of, of the time it's through the lens of people who are trying to improve and people your, your clients or yeah. people you've worked with and there's definitely there's definitely I definitely you can read between the lines and there's a lot of there's a lot of treasure there to, to be had from a from, mm. from a, a really good from a golfer point of view. yeah exactly Just pointing at me again um <laughs> You know, as a beginner, as an expert, and as someone like Tom who's taken to the game, you know, not as, didn't do it as a, as a junior. Mm. Um, but you need to hopefully read between the lines and find that. And the idea is to sort of try to break down the expectations and constraints that sort of burdened golfers for a, for a long time now and try to see the game and question the game differently. So when you see something or some, something, somebody tells you something, you might you might be able to question that and think actually no mm. or why um and think you can play a very very good standard by not having to follow this very formulaic step-by-step -step route and, and the book transcends that and talks about courses and things like that you, you one of the things you touched on a little bit i think is is that power of like observational learning as well yeah, I, I think, think that would be worth talking about. I found that fascinating when you were, you know, talking about observational learning. Well, and I suppose there's a lot to be said about someone like someone like Mickelson in this case, who obviously his dad was a good golfer, watched his dad swinging in the mirror mm. and sees it from a different perspective. So swings. What's well, so the face on with me? Yeah. Because well, Tiger did the same, didn't he? Yeah. His dad was a left-handed golfer and he used to put him in the garage in the pram or in the seat. His dad would just whack balls into the garage, into the net. And, and just, just, just learn to replicate. And that childlike instinct of observational learning, which is how kids learn to walk and do all the basic stuff that we do as adults. And yet you see a lot of people who come at it then and almost later in life just completely abandon that concept. The thing you talk about, you can watch what the club does and the position stuff, watch what the body's doing, like watch the way people create a movement around the swing. And when you think about all the great golfers, they all do different things with their body. It all looks different. You know, if you break down the sequence of where the club is at P5, yeah, there's probably a lot of overlap, but it's the body and people, how people move around the ball that is almost like it's, it's like a fingerprint. It's unique to them almost. It is, that, it is unique to them, but it's also fundamentally the same. You so, think? you know, if you look at Taker and one of my favorite swings, Mickey Wright or, or Hogan and, or Nicholas from the olden days, and you put that against a McElroy or a, a Kepka now, you know, you, you know, they're, they're not, 
they're not biomechanically the same, but if you took the club out, if you erased the golf club, you would see that they've 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 fully turned and the olden day golfer would have had more release in the knee and the leg to help release the turn. But fundamentally, when they make their turn, they haven't lifted, they haven't swayed and that hasn't changed. They've just done it biomechanically differently now. Mm. And we briefly touched on it around the course. It's all about creating that opportunity for the, the swing, any swing, your swing, short swing, long swing to transition into the ball so you can hit a sweet golf shot on. Mm. That's what, if you observe what the bodies are doing and you're sort of not athletic like Rory McIlroy, you want to be looking at golfers from the past mm. because I think you're more likely to learn and be or, more or even, looser in the body. Because they weren't athletes, you know, they weren't They were different type yeah. of athletes, weren't yeah. they? They're not machines now. You, unless you are so highly tuned or super young, you are not going to perform consistently what they're doing now. And you don't have to either. I think should. I've watched some of the LPGA and think some of those swings are like... Really swings that I'd think, yeah, I'd, I'd love to swing about that. It's almost like they get more out of it in on the LPGA. It's like just a, they're more languid. It's more fluid. It's just, it seems just really elegant and something you're like, oh, I'd love to swing the, the club like that. And I think Where most the people- are so violent. When you watch it, like the PGA, it's just so violent, isn't it's it? It's so like, violent, but it's still violent through their bodies. But and but they can do that. I mean, and, and if the focus is all on the swing, that just, it stiffens up the body. Because when you're focused on the, the P5s and the P4s. Your focus is so involved in the uncontrollables, mm. you know, what the swing is doing, and you're so focused on the arm. They're symptomatic which, of what the body's doing. They are, yeah. Um, you know, it's a non-reactive game. Mm. Um, and in any other sport, you know, I got to teach sort of like boxers and rowers and men and women from all different sports. And without realising, you know, you're reacting to the ball or something or the person, your body is naturally helping facilitate the technique. But the illusion is... You're hitting the tennis ball with your arms. You're punching the the mm. opponent with your arm. You're mm. hitting the golf ball through your arms and the golf club. But that actually happens right down at the point of contact. So it's it's, it's understanding how the body is the facilitator of that motion, and then it can be any motion. Mm. If it if it there's a backswing and there's that little bit that Percy Boomer musically says word. It, it is an illusion. It's a really it's a really accurate word for it because like so many bad golfers intermediate golfers i am one of the worst for it just throws their arms at it because it's just so ingrained in your head it's the you know it comes through your arms your hands where it's just like the absolute wrong thing to be doing Mm. it's because it's a non-reactive game and there's so much technique so much so many people telling you what to do by default if you haven't got that that you haven't played enough golf where your body is is becoming almost like naturally reactive Mm. You can then think about your arms. You almost, yeah, but unless you have that, if you think about your arms, your body will be, it will come out of sync more often than it will be in sync. And then it's almost like when you're a kid. Like I wasn't a junior golfer, but it's almost like because the clubs, because you haven't got the strength to manhandle the club through the swing, that you kind of your body has to do it because you can't, you know, you can't lift it and put it into a position and swing hard at it because you're just a little kid. Hundred percent as a kid, I and threw my body at it. Yeah, you just, it's all and I still do now, but I threw my body at it a lot because it was the only way to really create any yeah. any meaningful impact when you're seven years of age. Like I think you, all Tiger yeah. was just move his lower body yeah. and then just allowed the swing to catch up and allowed the swing to find the ball and it, and it got some timing with it. And now, you know, swings change. He's able to make it more mm. compact and more more mechanical and more sort of compressed as, as we hit it now. But he's got that layer to do that. 
but his lower body is still always naturally helping him to make those small alterations to hit the ball more compressed and more powerful. But the majority of us don't need to worry about that. Mm. And uh, your your life is your golfing world now is radically different to perhaps when you're in your late teens or your time when you're working at urban golf, the title on the book, it's a really eye catching title. What was the thinking behind that? Again, it's the uncorrupted, you know, I started off the game, you know, uncorrupted by people like me or advice. Mm. So I found a way to play the game. You know, and uh, I certainly found a way to play the game with a putter as well, you know? Um, and I think that's, and I think you I just love saw putting, that. don't you? You said that a couple of times out there. You were like, oh, I love just just putting. Yeah, I mean the the the, the final. You haven't read. Um, no, you haven't read that. You read the last the last chapter, the uncorrupted pleasure of an old Sam man. Sam didn't putter. share the book with me, unfortunately. I'll yeah, send you one. Uh, don't you worry. I tend yeah. to keep most of the copies of those. She's got a better book of golfing library than me. So it's just putting and living, you know. And it's and with that bladed putter, you know, I love putting. It's a beautiful part of the game. It's the icing on the cake. It's sort of like everything. Yeah. And um. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you do I talk about like, the satisfaction of picking the ball out of the hole. Yeah. And I panic, genuinely. Like I'm like, and I'm not an okay putter, but like, I get I get to agree. Like I imagine you're going, oh god, this is good now. I get to do a bit of putting. I get there and think, oh god, I've got to get the ball in the hole now. I hate it. Do you I hate it? I think a lot of people. I think do. that's more outcome anxiety, though. Yeah, like I think even if I'm playing on my own, if I'm trying to keep score, you'll feel anxiety when you've got the opportunity to miss a putt because it's so short. But if you strip it back, it can be quite a pleasurable activity putting. As golfers, we massively neglect the time to putt. Not practice, not getting like string pieces of string out and mirrors. But there is a there is a purity to just rolling the ball on the green that's well, very I, nice. That's what it is, and and we all I, go and hit a bag of seven irons and well, just try and hit the I same remember. shot and repeat but it's it's the simplicity of it right and it's the it's the joy of like of like getting on the green and just seeing that ball on the journey it's going to mm. take left to right down the hill breaking and then just dropping in and then that's the joy and then it's just just executing that in any way you like with any putter you like mm. you know it doesn't really matter how you stand how you hold it it's how long your putter things. is if you see it you want it and and some days your eyes are in you you whole loads of putts it's been one of the things i think that um we talked about the dark ages of the swing where everyone was kind of taught to swing the same it's one of the things in golf i think has always had a lot of individuality and accepted individuality <laughs> different ways of holding the putter different putters you know broomstick putters short putters everything and it's kind of always been accepted that's allowed to stay very individual is putting, I think. Although they're taking out the obviously taking out the anchoring now, but um, yeah, it is all something they, they've. There's more ways to skin created. a cat with it, aren't there? For sure. Like, I think with putting, you can. I you still know, think really... if you watch everyone, they still stand the same though. And you think? Still, still look a bit. You think? Yeah, still look a bit stiff over it. Mm. You know, um, I think so. I think still many people are, are working a lot far more room too. For, a lot more room for personality in there. Yeah, definitely. If you can't create any personality with rolling ball on the ground, you're going to struggle when you're mm. 180 yards back in the fairway, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it's a great way of looking at it. It's a great remember, way of looking at it. If you can't see the ball going in the hole, there's no point some psychologist telling you to like pitch your shot from 200 yards if you can't do it from 16 yeah. foot a little bit left to right down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I again, the great players. We were at Royal Liverpool a couple of years back. And we were having a drink outside and two of the old boys turned up and they're like, yeah, we're here for 18 holes. And they just dropped some balls down. 
Well, and they were like, you've only got a pat it. Yeah. Just take a glass a of red out and they're just playing 18 holes. 18 holes pat it. The competition was in two of them. And after they'd patted 18 holes, they were going to go in for a drink. But that's how you, but like the, if you take the life cycle of a golfer, it's kind of how you bookend it. As a junior, you basically spend, you know, if you play loads of junior golf, you, you, you spend ages on the putting green playing little putting matches. And when, you, when you're too old to go and play nine or 18 holes, you go out with your pal and have a have a drink and go and, and, and just part and it's probably you know because physically limited to doing that and it, you know I, I i can kind of get on board it's with not what you're saying is it? you don't no. need uh, expert advice or to spend money on a putting lesson with a camera um you you think that that whole concept these with still kenyan that sort of stuff you Whoever think it's is, like yeah, I don't know you know these like. huge studios where it's like laser laser guided and all the kind of they've got the you know the same stuff like i've never done this but they've got you can go into looking at these lab performances with putters like are you hitting it half a degree on the up or you're hiding it half a degree on the down (laughs) you stroke is x to y and you think i i I can't get a photo of your facial expression for those of you watching in black and white (laughs) yeah james's face is horrifying it's not you shouldn't take you know what i say is true but come on if you think about that logically do you really think that's going to make you a confident putter that loves putting that because you're always going to be worried about something aren't you because somebody has tried to justify something with technology or make it all spangly of rolling a ball on the ground that's all it is yeah you think you think we're over servicing it massively for yeah, the benefit of the people, because we've cre- because we've got the technology, we can now yeah. create an industry out of people's phobia from six feet. So we've done it, and it's like, have we made the game any better? Probably not. I, I, you know, we've got to like all things. We've got to separate the elite player from the club golfer, the amateur golfer. You take the amateur golfer that maybe goes and books into the takes. I, I know someone plays at our club who's done a like six, seven hundred pound putting course, few lessons with like an elite Is putting instructor. No comment. Yeah. And, you know, that served as a crutch for him, no doubt. But he's a right-handed golfer that putts left-handed. It's he like, you know, <laughs> let, let's start there and work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and you think, I don't know, maybe we've created an industry out of it because I we actually can right. do. Because we can do. Yeah. Um, and then Not because it's think, what people need. No, they, they really don't. You know, there, there is a small place for technology, no doubt about it. Um, and it, it's fun. It can also be fun as well to look at the numbers but for the for the majority of us it's just going to just cloud your ability to play the best golf you can in my in mind because going to the driver and the numbers you know anybody who's played golf sort of 15 20 years ago would hit your drive off tee and you never ever ever thought about how far it went mm. you just put your back club back in the bag it was either a f- good one or a bad one yeah and you're walking up the fairway, chatting on it, and the next thing you do is you're trying to think, how do I get it on the green? How do I birdie from there? You're not thinking, actually, I didn't hit that like I did in the sim when I was really warm and I'd hit 30 balls and I've carried Whereas now we're doing golf by numbers and we see the incorporation of like complex, or not even complex, but just statistical modelling. People know they've got to be operating at 120 club head speed to play at an elite level because then they can gain x percentage over the field because they can get it within 100 yards on a 400 yard hole or whatever and it's like we've got away from it a little bit the scores now. haven't got much better have they 
I mean, it's another that. argument, I don't another know. discussion, is it, whether the, the modern-day distance is... has gone up significantly, though, hasn't it? And the reason yeah, people absolutely. are motivated, There's because no they're, statistically fit, you know that... They're fitter, they're yeah. making better golf clubs, they're fitting the balls to make to fit mm. the club. So mm. if you're a high spinner, they can give you a low-spinning ball with a low-spinning shaft. So there's no doubt about it. You can hit the ball further. Um, but whether we should be sort of like stuck on that... Yeah, um, I think statistically, I mean... I mean there is a categorically no doubt if you can hit if you can get your swing speed up you hit the ball further if you hit the ball further your scores come down like there is just no there is no getting away from it mathematically but i think for most average golfers that aren't playing pga tour you know the difference between being swinging at 98 and, and 99 is it's just Maybe so negligible on the courses we play that just focus on focus on things that are going to make you enjoy it more. Yeah, and I think if you go if you go along and, and went to uh, uh, to see like a, a James at Urban and fitting, that can make you enjoy the game a lot more because mm. it's enjoyable to understand about what a club does and how you fit one together, and it can be fun. Mm. But it's if if it becomes the sort of the only thing you think is going to make you better, then it's the problem. So there's nothing wrong with spending money on a really nice driver or a really nice set of irons and having them fitted. I've got no problem with that at all because. Why not? Because it's there, isn't it? Get the best out of the equipment for your yeah. game. But it it just can't be, that's going to make yeah. me better. Yeah, a lot of these manufacturers do a great job of it now as well. In terms of, you know, very rarely do they expect you just to buy it off the shelf. But I've never understood someone that can go drop 450 quid on a driver that they literally just pick up from a, a rack and go, yeah, this will do. Because the manufacturers do a great job of it now. All of them do. They, you know, you go in, they fitter, they change all the lofts and lies and everything else that you need, the shaft stiffness and all the rest of it but and james does a great job i know that um you know he spends months building sets for people and he, oh, he gets he's got to be in. one of the best isn't he yeah and he spends a long time and he, he puts a lot of soul into it but um we could be you know too dismissive of modern equipment and you know ultimately it does help you know bigger faces better 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 producing ball flight from modern equipment does enable more people to get more enjoyment the danger is we can overdo it with science and we can overcook it to the point yeah. where it detracts from what's at the soul i, I think I just sorry, while you're sorry, on yeah. science, what's your thing on aim point <laughs> i think i know the answer well no because you love putting and you love and you love all that stuff and aim points kind of trying to bring a little bit of science out the, take take away the artistry maybe I don't think it's going to make you. Do you think? What do you think when you see club golfers coming and giving it the two fingers, straddle the line, wasting their time? Because I don't think it's going to make much difference. You can feel it in your feet when you start. I like feeling it in my feet. I like that as a thing. I don't do aim points. You don't need to do. You don't need to stand either side to. You don't need to straddle the putt to. I like to feel it break. I think it's easier with my feet than with my eyes. Okay. But I don't do the. I don't do the fingers or anything like that. But sometimes I like just to straddle it. <laughs> feel it and just yeah. like so no it's a little, a little bit, bit left easier. to right or right to left but again yeah. if you really want to hold it it can't just be a little bit left to right right to left you need to see it going in you said it's something lovely today you're like thing is all you need to do is to look at it and and want to put it in the hole and it'll go in the hole <laughs> it gives you an opportunity yeah that, it's about creating opportunities isn't it because it said sometimes your eyes not in and the strokes not going to be the same but you know when i'm really on i used to be able to watch that ball and see it traveling in my mind's eye where it's going to break, how it's slowing in, and actually watch it go in the hole. And only then did I watch it go in the hole, did I just step up to it and just set it on its path. Some days it was good, some days it was bad. But I was, I'd always say that I was a confident, enjoyed putting. Mm. And if I practiced, I only ever practiced from three foot. 
And I still think that's the lesson I give most people. If you've got a putting problem, go and sort it out from two or three foot yourself. And if you're still missing after 10, 15 minutes, then I'll come and give you a hand with it. But mm. if you if you can hold loads of putts from that range, you're okay. I think you're okay because, you know, I only ever practiced from that range. I had put thousands of balls in from three foot. And again, I didn't know what I was doing, actually. I think I read somewhere or heard somewhere that when Montgomery went to college in the States, they made them do 100 putts from three foot. I don't know where I got that information from. It stuck in my head. I thought, I like that idea. I'm going to do that. Yeah. So I did it and did it and did it. And when I was reflecting back on my life, golfing life, when I was thinking about the book, I thought, well, okay. So I was a really confident putter. People said you were a good putter. And why is that? Because I had to be a lady putter. No one ever gave me a lesson. I never had a lesson. And it was actually, uncorrupted. It was like it no was one had got into your head on it. But because I just hold so many putts from three foot, you, you rarely miss from inside three foot. So what that does, regardless of your style or your putter, that creates this sort of continuous sort of seed of confidence mm. in your ability. It's constant reinforcement. Reinforcement, because yeah. if you go step back to two to five foot, you're going to miss more than your hole, and then you start going to tinker all the time. But also that created a confidence in my routine, my style. You know, my feet used to point left, shoulders were pointing left, and, you know, it was unconventional. But And also then when I was... What happened is when I fed back, when I had a 15 foot putt for birdie or 20 foot putt or any putt, I never th worried about the consequences. Mm -hmm. You're never going to do more than two from 15, well, 20 Because foot. I was, again, because I was so, uh, it was just familiarity as well. The more putts you hold from three foot, it's become so familiar. When you're having for that birdie putt or par putt, like you saw me rack a few past today because I never think about the consequences. I'm just trying to think in. The fear of failure is, is and then, debilitating. I've seen so many three yeah. putts, I used to knock the ones back in. Mm generally all the time and it was just from familiarity over all that was what i did my practice on and then and so that fed right back into that and i will stick to that and allow and tell people if i want to part let's get really good from that range can i ask a question you when we when we spoke Sorry if I'm uh, talking no, no 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 it's no, fascinating no, no. i want to talk about the process of of the book itself because not only just in terms of approaching that writing it you know how you kind of go because it's yeah there's an there's it's it's not just first party. There's some creativity too. There's obviously some, you know, license in there in terms of like how you've created the characters around the fables, but also then like the publishing side, you've kind of in that sort of hybrid world. Cause there's a whole thing around published authors and non-published. And you, you mentioned about, you know, like you kind of kept some of the purity by changing how you were doing the publishing of this as well. Right. Yeah. That was again, nothing, something I knew nothing about. You know, it's I a murky knew, world. It's a there, murky world, and I, I bet years ago it was a wonderful world to be like you know, to be a publisher, to be and you know writer. But, um, but how does it work? You give them like a so, little script, and they say, "Oh yeah, we'll we'll get on board with this." No, I mean generally you'll be very very lucky to send like a proposal to somebody. You've got to send it to an agent. You're very unlikely for a publishing house to just take your proposal without an without an agent. Some will take your your book waiting is, is awful so anyway i sent it to an agent who used to be a publisher um um and they got back to me and really enjoyed the three or four chapters that i sent them because as a non non-writer someone who hasn't well known that i need to get the book shelf ready mm. Yeah, it's so got to like, stand what? on its own legs, whereas an established author can just knock can just out any old an idea, shit. Yeah, John, yeah. You know, and, and it's uh, like, oh, great, John Grisham. Grand. Yeah, just wheel it in. It'll There's be fine. 50 grand going, yeah. you need to do that in six months. So 
so that was really exciting so from a real agent who's a, a big agency in london they really they were really excited to say right can you write us another few chapters it's amazing we love it we've put it around we've given it to some of the other people in the office um we've shared it with a few golfers it's great it's so different um so we did so i signed a contract with a big agency and it was all really exciting um and then like so many books like so many movies you know you know the publishing houses really it's about marketing mm. it's not about the love that goes into it it's about will that sell books for the so actually the people that make decisions aren't the people that love books generally yeah and so i was getting a bit frustrated with the agency and it's not his fault I mean, you know he was dealing with things more famous people so i decided to pull the plug and investigate self-publishing and and that's awful really because a lot of them are algorithms you could write something down right now and just then get itself published um but they're knocking out books the quality would be poor so there's a lot of hybrids now where a lot of ex-publishers and agents uh, trying to give you the 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 same sort of processes you get with a traditional publishing house but you, but still you carry that, some of the risk you as well. carry some of the risk but also you carry some of the license you don't mm. you you don't have to change the front cover because you know like i said at the top of this pod these are beautiful looking books because you yeah. have the sketches coming in and i remember we met obviously at rngc um down in devon in the summer very different weather to what we've played in today yeah. um and i remember shortly after that you were inquiring for people to do some sketches for the front cover and mm. the product is a beautiful looking book there but you can imagine the whole product becomes diminished when on the shelf it's you know a different title it's like well, old bladed putter no one's going to buy that that's it's exactly like, what the yeah. um the agency said the london agency and you've got they a picture said, of a famous famous golfer on the front you know it's like, like well, i want to change it to sort of like the occasional miracle it's like mm. and when i stepped back from that i thought yeah, it's like when you know ricky gervais was making the I... office they wanted to put a laughter track in didn't they they yeah. were like oh it should go on bbc one and we should put a laughter track on it and he was like no like he just you know it's like you know, I'll just pull the plug on this if you if you change this, and you've got to hold firm. You've got to hold firm. So actually, take stepping back and not trying to and not care that it wasn't through a big agency or a great publishing house that allowed me to sort of stick to what the, the beauty in that title is, and it allowed me then to sort of like find my own illustrator and mm. have my ideas go into the illustrations and and not have anyone tell me well this is won't sell and that, what does success look like then so how do you success is it's published how do you know is yeah. that, it's published it's a wonderful thing it's done you were saying something interesting earlier about to become a bestseller which blew me away actually you don't need to sell it's, i think it's something ridiculous like a bestseller is like five thousand books and to the average yeah, book no way the average book i think sells around 250 or 500 copies so if you've got 50 grand you could just publish it buy them yourself and you could legitimately <laughs> but i bet you there's some i mean you could just send bots out to buy your well, you need it's an expensive way to get a bestseller because you, you don't make any money from books. you don't make any books money from books anyway but once you've no. got a couple of bestsellers under your belt you can just crack well, on then from you there. can then write another one can't <laughs> yeah. you so is um, there is there another book in you was the process too the process painful? was the process was lovely it was it was the best part you enjoyed it. the process I of writing getting on the train when did you do it did you like have like oh, it was I, in my I urban it in days. My mornings or it you, was any time get on the train i'd just write i'll just write and write and write and it would be really awful i expect you know but i'll just write and then i'd edit it and then i'd think and then it evolved and it changed and i rewrote it probably like mm. 20 times because i'm a tinkerer not tinker of the goal swing, but I'm a tinker of no, like... No, but they say the first edit or the first draft is the hardest to get down because once you've got something down, you can iterate and you can improve from there. Exactly. And I just, so it just, it just, it just evolved over like a number of years and I didn't write it for a bit because it wasn't 
like a project to try and make money. It was just something you I was just, just kept adding just, to it, just and, kept adding to it. and not worrying about it. And then, and then finally, I gave it to my uh, my wife, who she really did a wonderful job editing it. Mm. Did she? she? Yeah. She's um she yeah, really she's sort of like thank yous actually isn't she? She's the in start. the thank yous yeah. yeah um because without her it wouldn't have been shelf ready and it would have been harder than to get that recognition because and I think that goes with a lot of writers you know that's what the editors jobs are for mm. you know they sort of help bring books together they help you know my wife beautifully cleansed yeah. the paragraphs and you can be so there's it's a lot shorter you're too than it close was. to it at that point too close to it, I yeah. was too close to it at that point I um, find that with 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 films that I'm on, I'm just far too close to it and I hate them. By the time I'm finished, I'm like, I just... St. Andrew's film, you absolutely hate hated it. Everyone else watches it, thinks it's wonderful and beautiful well, like, and put and together. Even if I go back to it two months later, I'm like, oh yeah, that was quite nice actually. I, um, but you get so attached you to do. it and you can see every fault or perhaps you can't see the fault, which is the problem. But yeah, it is, um, it is tricky, but are you pleased you did it? Oh, yeah. It, it was wonderful, and it's and that's like say the 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 success or the reward is just now. It's seeing fit, it there. It's seeing it right in your hands there, and, and I was talking about really it. Thank you, it. And, and that's it. I'm not. But there's an aesthetic thing to a book as well, isn't there? You know, like that's important and, to me. And that, that holding, it's a nice book to hold. It's a nice book. Yeah. We got it in hardback. Does it come in? It comes um, in paperback floppy back as, well. as well. It comes in floppy back. I Can mean, we read the little bit about your dad in there as well? I really like that little sentence at the beginning about your dad. Oh, and the. Uh, yeah. The dedications. The dedications. I thought it was brilliant. Well, you haven't seen this yet. Well, no, you didn't share the book with me. No. So I, I, I will give it a read. So to my dad, a truly wonderful man with a truly dreadful short game. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a wonderful little dedication. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But our listeners, let's 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 do Operation Bestseller. How does someone get their hands on this wonderful stocking filler? It's um, not just a stocking filler. You can get it's not a stocking well. filler, but it's just I just think it's a perfect little book. Like everyone has to have that in their arsenal. I think it's very kind. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the, this unfortunately the simplest way is to go on to um, Amazon. You can just you can search the Uncorrupted Pleasure or put my name in. Um, you can James go. Ellis you can go to Rewilding the Golfer, and the link is on the on the page of my Instagram. Um, you can go into an independent bookshop. Um, they might not have it in there, obviously, because they can't, you know. What's but you can order it. What's the famous soccer M lines? All the good bookshops and some rubbish ones as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. exactly. So, um, or you know, um, if you want a copy signed, then just send me a message, and uh, I'll post one out to you. <sighs> Any parting pearls of wisdom? Oh, you put me on the spot there. Enjoy putting. I think that's what it is. Just yeah. learn to love putting, putting and living. Just learn to love it. Yeah. That's the sub the subheading to the uncorrupted chapter thirteen. It's one of my favourite chapters, along with the mercurial magic of the short game. <laughs> Tom, I'll send you one and I'll put it in the post for you. James, it's been an absolute pleasure playing some speed golf with you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast for us today, and uh, hopefully, we'll sell a lot of books. Thank you so much. I've, I've really enjoyed this. It's been a magical day, yeah. Cheers, James. Watch this.